Chapter 11 of an Essay on the Trial by Jury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. Trial by Jury by Lysander Spooner. Chapter 11 Authority of Magna Carta. Probably no political compact between king and people was ever entered into in a manner to settle more authoritatively the fundamental law of a nation than was Magna Carta. Probably no people were ever more united and resolute in demanding from their king a definite and unambiguous acknowledgment of their rights and liberties than were the English at that time. Probably no king was ever more completely stripped of all power to maintain his throne and at the same time resist the demands of his people, than was John on the 15th day of June, 1215. Probably no king ever consented, more deliberately or explicitly, to hold his throne subject to specific and enumerated limitations upon his power, than did John when he put his seal to the great charter of the liberties of England. And if any political compact between king and people was ever valid to settle the liberties of the people, or to limit the power of the crown, that compact is now to be found in Magna Carta. If, therefore, the constitutional authority of Magna Carta had rested solely upon the compact of John with his people, that authority would have been entitled to stand forever as the supreme law of the land, unless revoked by the will of the people themselves. But the authority of Magna Carta does not rest alone upon the compact with John, when in the next year, 1216, his son, Henry III, came to the throne, the charter was ratified by him, and again in 1217, and again in 1225, in substantially the same form, and especially without allowing any new powers, legislative, judicial, or executive, to the king or his judges, and without detracting in the least from the powers of the jury and from the latter date to this the charter has remained unchanged in the course of two hundred years the charter was confirmed by henry and his successors more than thirty times and although they were guilty of numerous and almost continual breaches of it and were constantly seeking to evade it yet such were the spirit vigilance, and courage of the nation that the kings held their thrones only on the condition of their renewed and solemn promises of observance and it was not until 1429, as will be more fully shown hereafter, when a truce between themselves and a formal combination against the mass of the people had been entered into by the king, the nobility, and the forty-shilling freeholders, a class whom Mackintosh designates as a few freeholders then accounted wealthy. Mackintosh's History of England, Chapter 3, 45, Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia. 354. By the exclusion of all others than such freeholders from all voice in the election of knights to represent the counties in the House of Commons, that a repetition of these confirmations of Magna Carta ceased to be demanded and obtained. Note. Forty shilling freeholders were those people dwelling and resident in the same counties, whereof every one of them shall have free land or tenement, to the value of forty shillings, by the year, at the least above all charges. By Statute 8, Henry VI, Chapter 7, 1429. 
these freeholders only were allowed to vote for members of parliament from the counties. End footnote. The terms and the formalities of some of these confirmations makes them worthy of insertion at length. Hume thus describes one which took place in the thirty-eighth year of Henry the Third, 1253. But as they, the barons, had experienced his, the king's, frequent breach of promise, they required that he should ratify the great charter in a matter still more authentic and solemn than any which he had hitherto employed. All the prelates and abbots were assembled. They held burning tapers in their hands. The great charter was read before them. They denounced the sentence of excommunication against every one who should henceforth violate that fundamental law. They threw their tapers on the ground and exclaimed, May the soul of every one who incurs this sentence so stink and corrupt in hell. The king bore a part in this ceremony and subjoined, So help me God, I will keep all these articles inviolate, as I am a man, as I am a Christian, as I am a knight, and as I am a king crowned and anointed. Hume, chapter 12. See also Blackstone's Introduction to the Charters, Blackstone's Law Tracts, Oxford Edition, page 332. Mackintosh's History of England, chapter 3, Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia, volume 45, page 233-4. to four. The following is the form of the sentence of excommunication referred to by Hume. The sentence of curse given by the bishops against the breakers of the charters. The year of our Lord, 1253, the third day of May, in the great hall of the king at Westminster, in the presence and by the assent of the Lord Henry, by the grace of God, king of England, and the lords Richard, earl of Cornwall, his brother, Roger, bigot, earl of Norfolk and Suffolk, marshal of England, Humphrey, earl of Hereford, Henry, Earl of Oxford, John, Earl of Warwick, and other estates of the realm of England. We, Boniface, by the mercy of God, Archbishop of Canterbury, Primate of all England, F. of London, H. of Ely, S. of Worcester, E. of Lincoln, W. of Norwich, P. of Hereford, W. of Salisbury, W. of Durham, R. of Exeter, M. of Carlisle, W. of Bath, E. of Rochester, T. of St. David's, bishops, apparelled in pontificals, with tapers burning against the breakers of the church's liberties, and the liberties of free customs of the realm of England, and especially of those which are contained in the charter of the common liberties of the realm, and the charter of the forest, have solemnly denounced the sentence of excommunication in this form, by the authority of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and of the glorious mother of god and perpetual virgin mary of the blessed apostles peter and paul and of all apostles of the blessed thomas archbishop and martyr and of all martyrs of blessed edward of england and of all confessors and virgins and of all the saints of heaven we excommunicate a curse and from the threshold limnibus of our holy mother the church we sequester all those that hereafter willingly and maliciously deprive or spoil the church of her right, and all those that by any craft or willingness do violate, break, diminish, or change the church's liberties, or the ancient approved customs of the realm, 
and especially the liberties and free customs contained in the charters of the common liberties, and of the forest, conceded by our lord the king to archbishops, bishops, and other prelates of England, and likewise to the earls, barons, knights, and other freeholders of the realm, and all that secretly or openly, by deed, word, or counsel, do make statutes, or observe them being made, and that bring in customs, or keep them, when they be brought in, against the said liberties, or any of them, the writers and counsellors of said statutes, and the executors of them, and all those that shall presume to judge according to them, all and every which persons before mentioned that wittingly shall commit anything of the premises, let them well know that they incur the aforesaid sentence, ipso facto, i.e., upon the deed being done. And those that ignorantly do so, and being admonished, except they reform themselves, within fifteen days after the time of the admonition, and make full satisfaction for that they have done, at the will of the ordinary, shall be, from that time forth, included in the same sentence. And with the same sentence we burden all those that presume to perturb the peace of our sovereign lord the king, and of the realm, to the perpetual memory of which thing we, the aforesaid prelates, have put our seals to these presents. Statutes of the Realm, Volume 1, Page 6, Roughhead Statutes, Volume 1, Page 20. One of the confirmations of the charters by Edward I was by statute, in the twenty-fifth year of his reign, 1297, in the following terms. The statute is usually entitled, Confirmatio Cartorum, Confirmation of the Charters. Chapter 1. Edward, by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, and Duke of Gunyan, to all those that these presents shall hear, or see, greeting, Know ye that we, to the honor of God, and of holy church, and to the profit of our realm, have granted, for us and our heirs, that the charter of liberties, and the charter of the forest, which were made by common assent of all the realm, in the time of King Henry our father, shall be kept in every point without breach, and we will that the same charters shall be sent under our seal, as well to our justices of the forest, and to all sheriffs of shires, and to all our other officers, and to all our cities throughout the realm, together with our writs, in the which it shall be contained, that they shall cause the aforesaid charters to be published, and to declare to the people that we have confirmed them at all points, and to our justices, sheriffs, mayors, and other ministers, which under us have the laws of our land to guide, that they allow the same charters in all their points in pleas before them, and in judgment, that is, to wit, the great charter as the common law, and the charter of the forest were the wealth of our realm. Chapter 2. And we will, that if any judgment be given from henceforth contrary to the points of the charters aforesaid by the justices, or by any others, our ministers that hold plea before them, against the points of the charters, it shall be undone and holden for naught. Chapter 3. And we will that the same charters shall be sent under our seal to cathedral churches throughout our realm, there to remain, and shall be read before the people two times in the year. Chapter 4. 
and that all archbishops and bishops shall pronounce the sentence of excommunication against all those that by word, deed, or counsel do contrary to the aforesaid charters, or that in any point break or undo them, and that the said curses be twice a year denounced and published by the prelates aforesaid, and if the same prelates, or any of them, be remiss in the renunciation of the said sentences, the archbishops of Canterbury and York, for the time being, shall compel and distrain them to make the denunciation in the form aforesaid. Statute 23, Edward I. 1297. Statutes of the Realm, Volume 1, page 123. It is unnecessary to repeat the terms of the various confirmations, most of which were less formal than those that have been given, though, of course, equally authoritative. Most of them are brief, and in the form of a simple statute, or promise, to the effect that the Great Charter and the Charter of the Forest shall be firmly kept and maintained in all points. They are to be found printed with the other statutes of the realm. One of them, after having again granted, renewed, and confirmed, the charters, requires as follows, that the charters be delivered to every sheriff of England under the king's seal, to be read four times in the year before the people in the full county, that is, at the county court, that is, to wit, the next county court, after the feast of St. Michael, and the next county court after Christmas, and at the next county court after Easter, and at the next county court after the feast of St. John. 28. Edward I. Chapter 1. 1300. Lingard says, The charter was ratified four times by Henry III, twice by Edward I, fifteen times by Edward III, seven times by Richard II, six times by Henry IV, and once by Henry V, making thirty-five times in all. Third Lingard, fifty, note, Philadelphia edition. Coke says Magna Carta was confirmed thirty-two times. Preface to Second Institutes, page six. Lingard calls these thirty-five successive ratifications of the charter, a sufficient proof how much its provisions were abhorred by the sovereign, and how highly they were prized by the nation. Third Lingard, 50. Mackintosh says, For almost five centuries, that is, until 1688, it, Magna Carta, was appealed to as the decisive authority on behalf of the people, though commonly so far only as the necessities of each case demanded. Mackintosh's History of England, Chapter 3, 45, Loudner's Cabinet Cyclopedia, 221. Coke, who has labored so hard to overthrow the most vital principles of Magna Carta, and who, therefore, ought to be considered good authority when he speaks in its favor, says, note, He probably speaks in its favor only to blind the eyes of the people to the frauds he has attempted upon its true meaning. End footnote. It is called Magna Carta, not that it is great in quantity, for there be many voluminous charters commonly passed, especially in these latter times, longer than this is, nor comparatively in respect that it is greater than Carta de Foresta, but in respect of the great importance and weightiness of the matter, as hereafter shall appear, and likewise for the same cause, Carta de Foresta, and both of them are called Magnia Carta Libertatium Angliae, the great charters to the liberties of England and it is also called Carta Libertatium Reni, 
charter of the liberties of the kingdom, and upon great reason it is so called of the effect, quia liberos facit, because it makes men free. Sometimes for the same cause it is called communis libertatis, common liberty, and le charte de franchise, the charter of franchises. It was for the most part declaratory of the principal grounds of the fundamental laws of England, and for the residue it is additional to supply some defects of the common law. Also, by the said act of 25 Edward I, called Confirmatio Cartorum, it is adjudged in Parliament that the Great Charter and the Charter of the Forest shall be taken as the common law. They, Magna Carta and Carta de Foresta, were for the most part but declarations of the ancient common laws of England, to the observation and keeping whereof the king was bound and sworn. After the making of Magna Carta and Carta de Foresta, diverse learned men in the laws, that I may use the words of the record, kept schools of the law in the city of London, and taught such as resorted to them the laws of the realm, taking their foundation of Magna Carta and Carta de Foresta and the said two charters have been confirmed, established, and commanded to be put in execution by thirty-two several acts of Parliament in all. This appeareth partly by that which hath been said, for that it hath so often been confirmed by the wise providence of so many acts of Parliament. And albeit judgments in the king's court are of high regard in law, and judicia, judgments, are accounted as juristicta, the speech of the law itself, Yet it is provided by act of Parliament that if any judgment be given contrary to any of the points of the Great Charter and Carta de Foresta, by the justices, or by any other of the king's ministers, etc., it shall be undone and holden for naught, and that both the said charters shall be sent under the great seal to all cathedral churches throughout the realm, there to remain, and shall be read to the people twice every year. The highest and most binding laws are the statutes which are established by Parliament, and by authority of that highest court it is enacted, only to show their tender care of Magna Carta and Carta de Foresta, that if any statute be made contrary to the Great Charter, or the Charter of the Forest, that shall be holden for none, by which words all former statutes made against either of those charters are now repealed and the nobles and great officers were to be sworn to the observation of Magna Carta and Carta de Foresta. Magna fuert quondam magne reverentia carta. Great was formerly the reverence for Magna Carta. Coke's poem to Second Institutes, page 1-7. to seven. Coke also says, all pretense of prerogative against Magna Carta is taken away. Second Institutes, 36. He also says that after this Parliament, 52 Henry the Third, in 1267, neither Magna Carta nor Carta de Foresta was ever attempted to be impugned or questioned. Second Institutes, 102. Note. It will be noticed that Coke calls these confirmations of the Charter acts of Parliament instead of acts of the King alone. This needs explanation. It was one of Coke's ridiculous pretenses that laws anciently enacted by the king, at the request, or with the consent, or by the advice of his parliament, was an act of parliament, 
instead of an act of the king. And in the extract cited, he carries this idea so far as to pretend that the various confirmations of the great charter were acts of parliament, instead of the acts of the kings. He might as well have pretended that the original grant of the charter was an act of parliament, because it was not only granted at the request, and with the consent, and by the advice, but on the compulsion even of those who commonly constituted his parliaments. Yet this did not make the grant of the charter an act of parliament. It was simply an act of the king. The object of Coke, in this pretense, was to furnish some color for the palpable falsehood that the legislative authority, which Parliament was trying to assume in his own day, and which it finally succeeded in obtaining, had a precedent in the ancient constitution of the kingdom. There would be as much reason in saying that, because the ancient kings were in the habit of passing laws in special answer to the petitions of their subjects, therefore those petitioners were part of the legislative power of the kingdom. One great objection to this argument of Coke, for the legislative authority of the ancient parliaments, is that a very large, probably much the larger, number of legislative acts were done without the advice, consent, request, or even presence of a parliament. Not only were many formal statutes passed without any mention of the consent or advice of parliament, but a simple order of the king in council, or a simple proclamation, writ, or letter under seal, issued by his command, had the same force as what Coke calls an act of parliament, and this practice continued to a considerable extent, at least, down to Coke's own time. The kings were always in the habit of consulting their parliaments more or less in regard to matters of legislation, not because their consent was constitutionally necessary, but in order to make influence in favor of their laws, and thus induce the people to observe them, and the juries to enforce them. The general duties of ancient parliaments were not legislative, but judicial, as will be shown more fully hereafter. The people were not represented in the parliaments at the time of Magna Carta, but only the archbishops, bishops, earls, barons, and knights, so that little or nothing would have been gained for liberty by Coke's idea that parliament had a legislative power. He would only have substituted an aristocracy for a king. Even after the commons were represented in parliament, they for some centuries appeared only as petitioners except in the matter of taxation, when their consent was asked. And almost the only source of their influence on legislation was this, that they would sometimes refuse their consent to the taxation, unless the king would pass such laws as they petitioned for, or, as would seem to have been much more frequently the case, unless he would abolish such laws and practices as they remonstrated against. The influence or power of Parliament, especially of the Commons, in the general legislation of the country, was a thing of slow growth, having its origin in a device of the king to get money contrary to law, as will be seen in the next volume, and not at all a part of the constitution of the kingdom, nor having its foundation in the consent of the people. The power, as at present exercise, was not fully established until 1688, near five hundred years after Magna Carta, when the House of Commons, falsely so called, had acquired such influence as the representative, not of the people, but of the wealth of the nation.
that they compelled the king to discard the oath fixed by the constitution of the kingdom, which oath has already been given in a former chapter, see page 101, and was, in substance, to preserve and execute the common law, the law of the land, or, in the words of the oath, the just laws and customs which the common people had chosen, and to swear that he would govern the people of this kingdom of England, and the dominions thereto belonging, according to the statutes in Parliament agreed on, and the laws and customs of the same. Note with a note. Statute 1. William and Mary. Chapter 6. 1688. End note. The passage and enforcement of this statute, and the assumption of this oath by the king, were plain violations of the English constitution, inasmuch as they abolished, so far as such an oath could abolish, the legislative power of the king, and also those just laws and customs which the common people, through their juries, had chosen, and substituted the will of Parliament in their stead. Coke was a great advocate for the legislative power of Parliament as a means of restraining the power of the king, as he denied all power to juries to decide upon the obligation of laws, and as he held that the legislative power was so transcendent and absolute as that it cannot be confined either for causes or persons within any bounds. Fourth Institutes. 36. He was perhaps honest in holding that it was safer to trust this terrific power in the hands of Parliament than in the hands of the king. His error consisted in holding that either the king or Parliament had any such power, or that they had any power at all to pass laws that should be binding upon a jury. These declarations of Coke that the charter was confirmed by thirty-two acts of Parliament have a mischievous bearing in another respect. They tend to weaken the authority of the charter, by conveying the impression that the charter itself might be abolished by act of Parliament. Coke himself admits that it could not be revoked or rescinded by the king, for he says, all pretense of prerogative against Magna Carta is taken away. Second Institutes, 36. He knew perfectly well, and the whole English nation knew, that the king could not lawfully infringe Magna Carta. Magna Carta, therefore, made it impossible that absolute power could ever be practically established in England in the hands of the king. Hence, as Coke was an advocate for absolute power, that is, for a legislative power, so transcendent and absolute as that it cannot be confined either for causes or persons within any bounds there was no alternative for him but to vest this absolute power in parliament had he not vested it in parliament he would have been obliged to abjure it altogether and to confess that the people through their juries had the right to judge of the obligation of all legislation whatsoever in other words, that they had the right to confine the government within the limits of those just laws and customs which the common people, acting as jurors, had chosen. True to his instincts as a judge and as a tyrant, he assumed that this absolute power was vested in the hands of Parliament. But the truth was that, as by the English Constitution Parliament had no authority at all for general legislation, it could no more confirm than it could abolish Magna Carta. These thirty-two confirmations of Magna Carta, which Coke speaks of as acts of Parliament, 
were merely acts of the king. The parliaments, indeed, by refusing to grant him money except on that condition, and otherwise, had contributed to oblige him to make the confirmations, just as they had helped to oblige him by arms to grant the charter in the first place. But the confirmations themselves were nevertheless constitutionally, as well as formally, the acts of the king alone. End footnote. To give all the evidence of the authority of Magna Carta, it would be necessary to give the constitutional history of England since the year 1215. This history would show that Magna Carta, although continually violated and evaded, was still acknowledged as law by the government, and was held up by the people as the great standard and proof of their rights and liberties. It would show also that the judicial tribunals, whenever it suited their purposes to do so, were in the habit of referring to Magna Carta as authority, in the same manner, and with the same real or pretended veneration, with which American courts now refer to the Constitution of the United States, or the Constitutions of the States. And, what is equally to the point, it would show that these same tribunals, the mere tools of kings and parliaments, would resort to the same artifices of assumption, precedent, construction, and false interpretation, to evade the requirements of Magna Carta, and to emasculate it of all its power for the preservation of liberty, that are resorted to by American courts to accomplish the same work on our American constitutions. I take it for granted, therefore, that if the authority of Magna Carta had rested simply upon its character as a compact between the king and the people, it would have been forever binding upon the king, that is, upon the government, for the king was the government, in his legislative, judicial, and executive character, and that there was no constitutional possibility of his escaping from its restraints, unless the people themselves should freely discharge him from them. But the authority of Magna Carta does not rest, either wholly or mainly, upon its character as a compact. For centuries before the charter was granted, its main principles constituted the law of the land, the fundamental and constitutional law of the realm, which the kings were sworn to maintain, and the principal benefit of the charter was that it contained a written description and acknowledgment by the king himself of what the constitutional law of the kingdom was, which his coronation oath bound him to observe. Previous to Magna Carta, this constitutional law rested mainly in precedents, customs, and the memories of the people and if the king could but make one innovation upon this law, without arousing resistance, and being compelled to retreat from his usurpation, he would cite that innovation as a precedent for another act of the same kind, next, assert a custom, and, finally, raise a controversy as to what the law of the land really was. The great object of the barons and people, in demanding from the king a written description and acknowledgment of the law of the land, was to put an end to all disputes of this kind, and to put it out of the power of the king to plead any misunderstanding of the constitutional law of the kingdom. And the charter no doubt accomplished very much in this way. After Magna Carta it required much more audacity, cunning, or strength, on the part of the king, than it had before, to invade the people's liberties with impunity. Still, Magna Carta, like all other written constitutions, proved inadequate to the full accomplishment of its purpose. For when did a parchment ever have power adequately to restrain a government, 
that had either cunning to evade its requirements, or strength to overcome those who attempted its defense. The work of usurpation, therefore, though seriously checked, still went on to a great extent after Magna Carta. Innovations upon the law of the land are still made by the government. One innovation was cited as a precedent. Precedents made customs, and customs became laws, so far as practice was concerned, until the government, composed of the king, the high functionaries of the church, the nobility, a house of commons representing the forty-shilling freeholders, and a dependent and servile judiciary, all acting in conspiracy against the mass of the people, became practically absolute, as it is at this day. As proof that Magna Carta embraced little else than what was previously recognized as the common law, or law of the land, I repeat some authorities that have been already cited. Crabb says, It is admitted on all hands that it, Magna Carta, contains nothing but what was confirmatory of the common law and the ancient usages of the realm, and is, properly speaking, only an enlargement of the charter of Henry I and his successors. Crabbe's History of English Law, page 127. Blackstone says, It is agreed by all our historians that the great charter of King John was, for the most part, compiled from the ancient customs of the realm, or the laws of Edward the Confessor, by which they mean the old common law which was established under our Saxon princes. Blackstone's Introduction to the Charters. See Blackstone's Law Tracts, Oxford Edition, page 289. Coke says, The common law is the most general and ancient law of the realm. The common law appeareth in the statute of Magna Carta, and other ancient statutes, which for the most part are affirmations of the common law, in the original writs, in judicial records, and in our books of terms and years. First Institutes 115b. Coke also says, It, Magna Carta, was for the most part declaratory of the principal grounds of the fundamental laws of England, and for the residue it was additional to supply some defects in the common law. They, Magna Carta and Carta de Foresta, were for the most part but declarations of the ancient common laws of England, to the observation and keeping whereof the king was bound and sworn. Preference to Second Institutes, pages 3 and 5. Hume says, We may now, from the tenor of this charter, Magna Carta, conjecture what those laws were of King Edward, the confessor, which the English nation during so many generations still desired, with such an obstinate perseverance, to have recalled and established. They were chiefly these latter articles of Magna Carta, and the barons who, at the beginning of these commotions, demanded the revival of the Saxon laws, undoubtedly thought that they had sufficiently satisfied the people by procuring them this concession, which comprehended the principal objects to which they had so long aspired. Hume, chapter 11. Edward I confessed that the great charter was substantially identical with the common law, as far as it went, when he commanded his justices to allow the great charter as the common law, in pleas before them, and in judgment, as has already been cited in this chapter. 25. Edward I. Chapter 1. 1297. In conclusion of this chapter, 
it may be safely asserted that the veneration, attachment, and pride, which the English nation, for more than six centuries, have felt towards Magna Carta, are in their nature among the most irrefragable of all proofs, that it was the fundamental law of the land, and constitutionally binding upon the government, for otherwise it would have been, in their eyes, an unimportant and worthless thing. What those sentiments were, I will use the words of others to describe. The words, too, of men, who, like all modern authors who have written on the same topic, had utterly inadequate ideas of the true character of the instrument on which they lavished their eulogiums. Hume, speaking of the Great Charter and the Charter of the Forest, as they were confirmed by Henry the Third in 1217, says, Thus these famous charters were brought nearly to the shape in which they have ever since stood, and they were, during many generations, the peculiar favorites of the English nation, and esteemed the most sacred rampart to national liberty and independence. As they secured the rights of all orders of men, they were anxiously defended by all, and became the basis, in a manner, of the English monarchy, and a kind of original contract which both limited the authority of the king and ensured the conditional allegiance of his subjects. Though often violated, they were still claimed by the nobility and people, and, as no precedents were supposed valid that infringed them, they rather acquired than lost authority, from the frequent attempts made against them in several ages, by regal and arbitrary power. Hume, chapter 12. Mackintosh says, it was understood by the simplest of the unlettered age for whom it was intended. It was remembered by them. For almost five centuries it was appealed to as the decisive authority on behalf of the people. To have produced it, to have preserved it, to have matured it, constitute the immortal claim of England on the esteem of mankind. Her Bacons and Shakespeare's, her Miltons and Newtons, with all the truth which they have revealed, and all the generous virtues which they have inspired, are of inferior value when compared with the subjection of men and their rulers to the principles of justice, if indeed it be not more true that these mighty spirits could not have been formed except under equal laws, nor roused to full activity without the influence of that spirit which the great charter breathed over their forefathers. Mackintosh's History of England, Chapter 3 Under the Heading of John of the great charter, the trial by jury is the vital part, and the only part that places the liberties of the people in their own keeping. Of this, Blackstone says, The trial by jury, or the country, per patrium, is also that trial by the peers of every Englishman, which, as the grand bulwark of his liberties, is secured to him by the great charter. Nullus liber homo capiator, vel imprisonator, Aut exulator, aut aleque modo destruator, nisi per legale judicium parim suorum, vel per legem terre. The liberties of England cannot but subsist so long as this palladium remains sacred and inviolate, not only from all open attacks, which none will be so hardy as to make, but also from all secret machinations which may sap and undermine it. 4th Blackstone, 349-50. to 50. The trial by jury has ever been, and I trust ever will be, looked upon as the glory of the English law. It is the most transcendent privilege which any subject can enjoy or wish for, 
that he cannot be affected in his property, his liberty, or his person, but by the unanimous consent of twelve of his neighbors and equals. Third Blackstone, 379. Hume calls the trial by jury an institution admirable in itself, and the best calculated for the preservation of liberty and the administration of justice that ever was devised by the wit of man. Hume, chapter 2. An old book, called English Liberties, says, English parliaments have all along been most zealous for preserving this great jewel of liberty, trials by jury having no less than fifty-eight several times since the Norman conquest, been established and confirmed by the legislative power, no one privilege besides having been ever so often remembered in parliament. Page 203, 5th edition, 1721. End of chapter 11